Please keep your Bible open there, it'd be great. Or you could see there is a little uh, URL you can go to there in the corner, tiny.cc slash pmreading, and that'll call up the Bible passage for you today. That'll be really, really helpful because we're going to look in some detail at this little section of the writer's epistle to the Hebrews. A question for you, first of all, just to think a bit about and then just chat with the person next to you. What's the best holiday you've ever had? The best holiday you've ever had and then... What's the best holiday you'd like to have? Have a little chat. I love living vicariously through other people's experiences. I find it genuinely satisfying. So uh, two, two people to share the best holiday they've had. Wow us. Don't give us something really lame. Like, pop. Yeah, see, there's something really lame. Like, <laughs> that's why I'm saying, don't give us something lame. Don't just go for laughs. But thank you, you got your laugh. You're happy now. What's the best holiday that someone's had? He's used up one of our goes already. Now, one more. Hong Kong. Hong Kong? With forty of my extended family. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What's the um, best holiday you'd like to have? Someone to share. Yeah. Reformation study tour of Europe. A Reformation study tour of Europe. You know that's really nerdy, right? <laughs> that's okay. I, fig- I know, I know. I figured that you wouldn't mind me saying that, but just naming it, because that's what everyone's thinking right at that moment. <laughs> Something else you'd like to do. Best holiday you'd like to have. I can't believe you said nothing. Come on. Two weeks on the beach with friends. I'd go that. That's pretty good. I'm surprised that no one said, oh, I'd like to have a holiday, you know, in, you know, um, Tuscany region of Italy in the summertime. Anyone say that? No. Anyone say, I'd like to tour through the Russian, former Russian states? No. Anyone say, 
I'd like to just go and spend a whole bunch of time on Pacific Islands. No. What did you say? I don't know. Anyway, I can't waste more time on it. Basically, my, my quest, the reason I'm asking the question is this. The reason I'm asking the question is this. In this section of the Bible that we're going to look at today from the book of Hebrews, it talks about, the writer talks about rest. Rest. Now, we love the idea of rest. Everyone loves the idea of rest. You just, just would be nice to have a rest. And especially as uni sort of actually starting and you've actually got it now, you know, week four, you've actually got to start turning in some work, actually start doing some study. You're thinking, oh yeah, I'm ready for a break now. I only had three months over the summer. I've done four weeks. I'm ready for a holiday. We all love the idea of rest. But my basic question to you is, is your aspiration for rest too weak, too small? I think you maybe don't long for rest enough. You don't long for enough of a rest, a good enough rest. Your aspirations for holidays and rest are just a bit too small. So let's have a look at this section of the Bible and I'll see if I can persuade you of this. Um, I've got a couple of different headings. If you want to take notes today, you can take some notes. I'll give you the headings as we go. The first heading is this, where are we going? Where are we going? And the answer is rest in capital letters, rest. Have a look. Uh, first of all here, rest is actually in this passage of the Bible described to us as the goal of creation and of human life. You don't live to work. Actually, it is true. You work to live, to enjoy rest. That's the purpose of your life, to enjoy rest. Have a look if you've got your Bible there. Um, through this section of the book of Hebrews, these first couple of chapters, we've already seen a little bit about what the human destination is. If you've got your Bible there, you can see back in chapter 2, verse 10, it talked about God was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We talked last week of the, a trajectory that God has, a great salvation where he wants to take human beings to glory. Or if you look there in chapter 3, verse 1, the first verse we had read today, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling. The one true living God has called you to be with him in the heavenly places. That's your destination. So that's how it's been described so far. Glory, heavenly calling. And now he's going to use the word rest to describe that. Now we think of rest as a holiday, but what the, the rest that God has promised is so much more so much better than a holiday. Rest, this is how I'm going to describe it, using what the Bible says, rest is life experienced in complete fullness of God's blessing. Life experienced in complete fullness of God's blessing. Or to say it another way, life experienced when all of God's wonderful plans and purposes are realised in your experience. When all of God's plans and purposes are fully realised in your actual flesh and blood experience. That's rest. Or, again, rest is life experienced, if you like alliteration, life experienced in God's presence, with his power, with his protection, with his abundant provision amongst his people working in his project. I think that was six Ps. God's presence 
in his power, with his protection, with his abundant provision amongst his people working in his project. We've um, devalued the idea of rest and we've reduced it just down to the idea of doing nothing. That's what we think rest is, doing nothing. But actually you sort of know if you stop to think about it for 30 seconds that that's not actually right. If you say what I'd really like to do is just, I just want to have a rest, I just want to do nothing. Okay, you actually want to do nothing? You actually just want to, well you're just going to lie there. You're not, you're not going to chew any food. No, no, I don't want, I don't want to do anything. I just, will just drip feed me. Okay, sure. All right, just. <laughs> this breathing's a bit of a hassle. <laughs> Couldn't we do something about that? Yeah, sure. It will, in, in, is it incubate? In, no. Whatever that thing is, you know, where they breathe for you. So you just like, you can do nothing. You think, yes, I'm now, I'm truly resting. Shame about all that brain function. So I've just got to sort of put myself into a self-induced coma so I can sort of just... Now I've fully realised rest. Who wants that? We don't view that as great. We view that as a tragedy. You know deep down inside that the real rest you want is not to do nothing. What is it actually that you want? You want to live life to the full. You want to experience things without pain and toil. That's what you actually want, without burdens, without toil, labour, pain, difficulty. That's what you want. Of course that's what you want. That's what God, the one true living God, has created you for. That's what rest is in the Bible. He wants you to enjoy rest like that. Life experienced at its very best as God intends. Now, a little quiz for you. Who is the first person to experience rest in the Bible? True, yes, I was going to say, someone's going to say Jesus, because that's always the right answer, but it's not the right answer, actually. (laughs) The right answer is God. Where does God rest? Yeah, it helped that I wrote days one to six up on the board. There was a little clue there, right? You know, if you go right back to the very beginning of the Bible... In six days, and I'm putting them in square quotes, and if you want to ask me why later, then you can talk to me later about that. But in six days, God creates all things. And then on the seventh day, according to Genesis chapter 2, what happens? He rested. He rested. And you, like me, you probably think, right, six days to create the universe, that's, that's a lot of work, that's impressive, that's where the real focus is, and oh. Then he had a little lie down, put his feet up, a bit of a cup of tea, just to sort of have a little bit soak in the sunset that he's just created, right? (laughs) You've got it wrong. The focus is not on the six days. The climax is not days one, two, three, four, or even day six. The climax of that creation account is day seven. Day seven is the climax because... He's finished everything and he now gets to experience the fullness of everything he's created. Day seven, and this is another interesting thing about Genesis chapter two. If you read through Genesis one and two, every day has a, a beginning and an end, a morning and an evening, each day of the six days. And you get, you're expecting this pattern and you get to um, day seven and no end. Day seven has no beginning or end. And what's that meant to tell you? It's meant to say that day seven continues on. Day seven doesn't have an end. This is God's 
the one true living God's rest. This is the rest of human history. God's rest, day seven. Okay, so as I'm building up this picture of rest, what do we want to say next? The problem when you read through the book of Genesis is that humanity has fallen out of God's rest because of our sin. Humanity, because of our rejection of God and His ways, has fallen out of God's rest because of our sin. The whole rest of the Bible then is the account of how the one true living God, who loves you profoundly and deeply, wants to restore you into his rest. And central to that whole story is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, so um, that was sort of rest as sort of the great goal of God's creation purposes. Second thing to say about rest, still on the first point, second thing is rest ultimately is found now in heaven, not on earth. Now, you ought to remember, if you've been with us over these last couple of weeks, that the people this writer is writing to are Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, but who came out of a Jewish background. They come out of a Jewish background and they would have associated the whole idea of rest with the promised land, the land of Canaan in the Old Testament, that God had promised he would give his people rest, by which he meant entry into the promised land. And the writer shows, though, here in the passage we're looking at, from the Old Testament itself, that rest, ultimate rest, can't be entry into the promised land. He says a couple of things. First of all, he points out, if you've got your Bible there, he points out in verses 3 to 6 of chapter 4, go to chapter, verses 3 to 6 of chapter 4, he points out that God has been resting since the beginning of creation, and yet he talks about people entering his rest. Have a look there at verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains, he says, that some will enter that rest. So here's his point. God rested from creation in Genesis chapter 2, and yet later on he told Israel in the wilderness, disobedient Israel who rejected him, that they were not going to enter his rest because of their sin. And then a bit later on, in Psalm 95... Through David, they can use that same idea again and say to people in David's own day, you need to listen to God's voice. If you don't listen to God's voice, you won't enter his rest. So clearly there is still open an entry into, into the rest. It can't have been the rest was just the physical land of Israel. Otherwise, it would have all been fixed up when Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan and that rest would have been completed. But it wasn't. In David's day, the call still goes out. Listen to God, and then you can enter his rest. 
but they were already in the land. So there must have been some other rest, not the earthly rest. So the point that he tries to establish is the ultimate rest that God has is a heavenly one, where Jesus is. That's why it's another way of talking about our trajectory is to glory. Another way of talking about our heavenly calling, that the ultimate rest is actually found in heaven where Jesus is, not on earth. I think it's very interesting, um, being an old person, I read, I get the, the, the newspaper still delivered on the weekends. I don't know why. Literally on Sunday it appeared in the rain. I picked it up and threw it in the bin. So I don't know why I'm paying money for that privilege, but anyway, I still occasionally I unwrap it and look at it. And as someone who's been looking at the Sydney Morning Herald for decades, like literally decades, it's very interesting how it's changed over the years. There are less of some things now and more of other things. There is less news than there used to be. That's what happens if you cut journalists, right? Anyone doing media and communications? I hope you're enjoying your degree because you might never get a job. But anyway, (laughs) well, I wish you would, but just the reality is journalists are not getting paid, so therefore there's less news in the Herald. Uh, what, what else is there less of? Well, there's less classifieds. There used to be lots of people trying to buy and sell things in the paper. Now it's all online, so that doesn't exist anymore. What's there more of? Well, we've increased the opinion pages. That's sort of interesting. What does that say about our culture? We've increased the property section massively. What does that say about our culture? And you know the other section we've increased? Travel. We have massively increased the travel section of the paper. And that says something about our culture. We have aspirations for leisure, for travel, for experiences. And you know what? I think that's pretty good. That's not bad. It's not bad to have those sort of aspirations because I think God wants you to have aspirations for a life that's more than what you have now. The problem is if you locate that actually in catching a plane to Paris or catching a plane to Fiji or if you actually think that's the fullness of life that God has planned for you. The sort of rest that he has established for you in the Lord Jesus is far, far better than any holiday you can imagine. That's what he wants you to have. So I just wonder if your aspirations and dreams of a restful life are actually too small. Look at what the writer here says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 11. He says, Since there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, let us make every effort to enter that rest. Okay, so let's move on from that. Then how point two, how do we get into God's rest? How do we get into this heavenly rest? with all the wonders and blessings that it has, God has for us there? Well, the answer in this passage is very simple. The answer is faith. Faith in God is the sole entry ticket to this rest. Faith in God is the sole entry ticket to this rest. Got your Bible there? Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest. 
Hearing the gospel message is not good to you. It's not, not good enough. Old Testament Israel, they heard the good news preached through the prophets, but that didn't, that didn't mean they got to enter God's rest because actually they didn't combine it with faith. So hearing the gospel message of the Lord Jesus isn't enough for you to enter in God's rest. It has to be combined with faith. Faith is the sole entry ticket into God's rest. The genuineness of your faith, that's seen in action. It's seen in obedience. How do I know that? Well, look here in the passage. Faith is contrasted right throughout this passage. Faith is contrasted not with unfaith. Faith is contrasted with disobedience. The opposite of faith is disobedience. Let's have a look here. It's in a few different places. Chapter 4, verse 6. He says, It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Or verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Or verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Sorry, verse of chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Faith is, the opposite of faith, is disobedience. Hearing God's word, but doing the opposite. Now, the thing in this particular passage is, what does faith consist in? Faith consists in trusting the word that has come from the one true living God. It's always meant that. What did faith look for, like for Adam and Eve? Well, it looked like trusting what God said. Don't eat of that fruit of that tree or you'll die, which they rejected. What did faith look like for Old Testament Israel? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself, which they rejected and so didn't enter his rest. What does faith look like now, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, now that the one true living God has spoken climactically in the person of his son Jesus? What does faith in this same God look like? Well, it looks like trusting the word that Jesus has spoken. So the, the, the faith he's talking about is faith that's seen in obedience to Jesus. Now the crazy thing that he's doing here, stay with me for this moment, Who's he writing to? He's writing to a bunch of Christians from a Jewish background who are, who are finding it hard to stay Christian because of persecution, because of just they've been Christians a long time and they're getting weary. They want to go back to Judaism. They want to say, forget Jesus, we'll just go back to our Jewish roots. That's what they want to do, right? Still worshipping the same God, isn't it? We'll be obedient to the law. We'll keep all the things. What does the writer do? The writer says, actually, if you don't trust Jesus, if you want to go back to Judaism, you're being like the Israelites who died in the wilderness. You're not going to be a faithful Israelite. If you reject Jesus, you're like those ones here who perished in the wilderness because they disobeyed the word of God. You want to go back to Judaism and reject Jesus? You're like those who perished in the wilderness. There is no way that you could go back to Jewish belief now that God has spoken through his son. If you want to believe in the one true living God, then you have to believe in the one he has sent. You have to believe in Jesus. That's the only option. 
Notice also here in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 3, he gives a little bit of an understanding of what where disobedience comes from. Have a look, verses 3, 12 to 13. He says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And then further down in verse 13, he talks about those hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Two things here, just two observations. Disobedience comes, I think from here, disobedience comes when we either doubt God, when we doubt God, or when we believe sin's lies. That's actually where disobedience comes from. When you doubt God, when you doubt his goodness to you, and instead you decide to trust sin's lie. And that happens all the time. Now, when I talk about you doubt God, I need to clarify. The sort of doubt that I'm talking about is doubt that says, I so doubt you, I'm not going to trust you, and so I'm going to actually do this instead. Right? So you call up an Uber because, you know, it's a long way to get to Redfin Station, and so you call up an Uber um, to meet you on City Road, and Uber turns up, and you go... You just look at the car, you look at the driver, and you just go, hmm, I'm not sure whether you're going to get me there to Redfin. Now, that's just a question. You could call it a doubt, but it's really just a question, a wondering, a little bit of uneasiness. The real question is, are you going to jump in and trust the Uber driver or not? The sort of doubt that I'm talking about here is where you go, actually, I'm not going to trust you, I'm going to move away. That sort of doubt is what leads to disobedience. The fact that you've just got a question, that's just normal human behaviour. The fact that you've got a question about stuff. And so that applies with God. You might have all sorts of questions about God. You might have questions about Is he really going to be good? Is he really got my best interests at heart? Can I really trust him when these other options are in front of me? Having questions is normal. Having questions is not a sin. The the, the real issue is what are you going to do with those questions? If, when push comes to shove, you decide, actually, you know what, I've got lots of questions, but I'm going to trust you anyway, that's actually faith. (laughs) That's real trust in God. But when you actually go, oh, I've got these questions, so I don't think I will entrust myself, that's the sort of doubt. That's not faith. That's what leads to disobedience. And we're encouraged here to make sure that we don't have that sort of sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Well, the writer then gives us, as I come towards the end, the writer gives us then three encouragements, three encouragements on how then can we be people who have faith. If God's goal is rest, that's what he wants for you. If the entry ticket is faith, three encouragements for you. First of all, he says, where to look. Where to look, number one, is look to Jesus. Go back to the beginning of chapter 3, which we had read for us. Beginning of chapter 3. He says, Therefore, holy sisters and brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts or consider Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. So the first thing he says is, 
Being Christian means you trust in Jesus, means you confess Jesus. Well, then keep looking at Jesus because you know what? Jesus is a great example of faithfulness. Great example of someone who trusted God. He trusted his father who appointed him to this particular role as son. And now he's given you a heavenly calling to make you his son and daughter in glory. So look at Jesus' example of faith. That's the first thing he says. Then he says, he compares Jesus to Moses. Halfway through chapter 3, verse 2, he says, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now remember, he's talking to a bunch of Christians who used to be Jews. And so they have a lot of affection for Moses, understand, because Moses was one of the great, the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, which the writer references here, in chapter 12, verse 7 of Numbers, the one true living God says, see Moses, he's the one who's really faithful in all of my house, in all of my people. So when God himself has said, pointed out to you and said, this is the one who's really faithful, I mean, you, he's a pretty good example of faith. So the writer here is saying, well, Jesus was faithful just like Moses was faithful, but actually Jesus, he says, is, is worthy of more glory than even Moses. I mean, Moses, I mean, Moses is the one who saw God face to face. Moses is the one who received the Ten Commandments, who saw God's very glory as God passed. Jesus is greater than, greater than Moses, has greater glory than Moses. Yes, the writer says. It's the difference between being a servant in God's house, which is what Moses was, versus being the son who rules over God's house. That's who Jesus is. It's the difference between being the servant who is faithful but is a part of God's house to being the son who actually builds God's house. This is the greater glory that goes to Jesus, even compared to faithful Moses. So the first encouragement is look to Jesus. Look to him who sets you this great example of faithfulness. Secondly, where to look? Where to look is look to yourself. Throughout this passage, there are lots of encouragements to all of us to not be like Old Testament Israel who heard the word of God but were disobedient. The constant encouragement to us is look to ourselves and make sure that we're not like them, but we're people of faith. And this is what sort of where he finishes the passage in chapter 4, verses 11 through to 13. Let me read that to you. Chapter 4, 11 to 13. He says, Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is a little bit scary. Think about what we've heard so far. The only entry ticket to eternal rest is faith. And the opposite of faith is disobedience. And he says, God's word, here he says, God's word judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, not just our actions. God's word judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And then he says, and nothing is hidden before God. When you put all of that together, doesn't that make you a little bit worried? 
if the only entry ticket is faith, and the opposite of faith is disobedience, and I know my own heart, I know that I disobey God. I've disobeyed God today to my shame. Well, then what hope is there for me? Well, look carefully in the text. Remember the things we've been told about Jesus. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. If you are a person who's put faith in Christ, you are holy. Or, as he says in chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus made purification for sins, for your sins. You have been purified. So yes, because I am someone who puts my trust in the Lord Jesus, all my sins are washed away. Or, as we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus has been the propitiation for our sins, the gift towards God that turns away his anger towards me. So yes, I know that even though I am a person who seeks to put my faith in the one true living God, I know that there's time after time I fall away. But you know what the mark of someone who is truly one of God's people is? It's not perfection. It's repentance when you sin. That's what Israel refused to do. They were hardened by sin's deceitfulness. They wouldn't repent, no matter how many warnings they were given. So when I sinned this morning, and when you sin, the question is, how are you going to respond to that with God's help? The person of faith in Jesus Christ responds with repentance bringing it back to God again, confessing our need for Jesus and seeking with his help to turn back to him instead of being hardened into disobedience. That's the mark of real faith, not perfection, because Jesus is the one who has made us his holy people. So yes, look to Jesus, look to yourself, and where to look finally is look to one another. I'll just leave with you chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, particularly verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's a lovely truth in this passage that it's not actually just about you and Jesus. It's actually about us and Jesus. We're to look to each other's progress in the faith. So when you're there in your EU small group, when you're chatting to friends at afternoon tea, are we looking to one another's holiness? Are we seeking to genuinely encourage one another so that no one might be excluded from God's rest through the deceitfulness and hardened heart of sin? There's an encouragement to look to Jesus, an encouragement to look to yourself, and an encouragement for us to look to one another so that we all might enjoy God's rest in that final day.
help us to not doubt your goodness and give it to sympathize. In those moments where we question whether or not we can trust you, remind us of who you are and what you have done for us and give us a faith that reminds us of something. We pray this in